Let's just bow our hearts just one more time as we uh, turn to God's word and together. Well, Father, what a great day to be turning to the scriptures. Lord, to see the truth there, that you did rise from the dead, that you are a risen saviour, and that you love us. Lord Jesus, as you have said yourself in John's gospel, the love wherewith the Father has loved you is the same love wherewith you now love us. Oh Lord, we are loved indeed. And we thank you. As we sit at your feet now and we just come together and just look at these scriptures, Father, speak to us, we pray. Your word is living and powerful. And Lord, it divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. Lord, cut away the the things of the flesh. And Lord, may we increase in knowledge and in grace in that which is spiritual, that we would grow more and more into the likeness of our Saviour. Just use this time now, Lord, to speak to our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this morning, what I'd like to do is to just have a look at this this incredible week. It's kind of the fulcrum of history. A fulcrum, if you're not sure, it's kind of that pivot point. And everything that has been, everything that will be, all pivots on this week in history. It's one of the most amazing portions of Scripture itself. And it's actually the whole reason why Jesus came, as we'll look at the scriptures in a moment. And of course, the cross itself is that pivotal point of history, of everybody's life. It's that dividing line, in a sense, as well. We read in Revelation 13, verse 8, it's speaking, it says, and, those, and all that dwell on the earth shall worship him, that's the Antichrist, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb. And then we're told, slain from the foundation of the world. You see, the cross was no accident. It was part of God's design from before the world was framed. God knew even before he began creating that the cross was necessary. It wasn't something that God did reluctantly, did willingly. Knowing that the only way for there to be God and man walking together in harmony was to go through the cross. Because naturally, no one man, no descendant of Adam would ever be able to walk in a way that was acceptable to God. The Bible makes it very clear that we've all fallen short of God's standard. No man that is except, of course, for Jesus. Why did Jesus come? Well, we read in Hebrews 10, verse 7, a a quote from Psalm 40. Then said I, lo, I come, this is Jesus speaking, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. That's the reason Jesus came, to do his Father's will. We read in John 4, 34, Jesus said unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. And Jesus says, I haven't come to be a great philosopher to give you lots of little pithy sayings that you can put on plaques and things. I've not come to be a motivational speaker. I've come to do the will of my Father and to finish, to complete that work. 
In John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Unless we think that this is all God's idea, that Jesus wasn't consenting to this, Jesus himself declares in Matthew 20, verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came with this expressed purpose. And it was all played out in this week that we referred to as Passion Week. I want to read to you something that's uh, quite old, the individual that wrote this, but it's very poignant. And it depicts, as it were, a conversation between God the Father, Christ the Son. Shortly after the creation shortly after the fall of man as wickedness was just overflowing the earth. And we read this. There's God the Father speaking. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls. And thus Christ replies, O oh my Father, such is my love too, and pity for them, that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills, that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in, that there be no after-reckonings with them. And at my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. But, my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last mite. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. And the son replies, Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. What grace. How incredible this gift that we've been given. We sang this morning, but in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul has these words, for he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This incredible exchange. Now, two of the most amazing words in the New Testament are found in the book of Ephesians. And those words are quite simply this, but God. I praise God for those two words. They are just phenomenal. I can't express how much. Ephesians 2 Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, only in him, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us, through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus. There is no other way. 
And it had to be God. There was no other power, force, being in the universe that was able to solve this problem of this separation that existed between God and man on account of the fall. We were dead in trespasses and sins, but God. No other words can go in that sentence. That is it, but God. I want to take you back to the autumn, winter of AD 31, up in Caesarea Philippi. That was in northern Israel. It was a place typically where the Romans would come and they would uh, have these hot springs and baths and so on. And Jesus is there with the disciples and they're looking around at everything. And Jesus asks, because there's all sorts of statues and you know, monuments, all sorts of people there. And Jesus asks them this question and says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I mean, that is an incredible statement for a human being to have grasped that. But Peter says that. Verse 20 says, Then charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Doesn't that seem a little strange to you? This narrative goes on in Matthew's Gospel. And we read verse 21 of chapter 16. From that time forth, this is a a turning point in Jesus' ministry, began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must, must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. What a statement. So Jesus telling his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me, but I'm going to rise from the dead. And they go, what does that mean? They they weren't dullards, they weren't unintelligent. But this was just such an awesome revelation that it was hard for them to get their heads around it. We'd have been the same. We're going to see this journey as Jesus goes from Caesarea Philippi. The first journey we go up to Mount Hermon, and we'll look at that in a second. And then from there back down to the area of Galilee. And then finally the journey is made down to Jerusalem as Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem for this appointment to fulfill all number of prophecies. On Mount Hermon, we read after six days from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Oswald Chambers comments on this, and he says, at this point, Jesus did what Adam should have done. And he turned his innocence to obedience by a series of moral choices. And also Chambers also makes the comment that really from this point, Jesus could have just gone back home to heaven. Jesus proved that it's possible to live as a perfect man. But God was just. God hadn't set some impossible task for us. But of course, Jesus doesn't stay on the mountain. But while he's there, an interesting event happens. This Mount Hermon, by the way, is the highest mountain in the region. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah. Now, this must have just blown the disciples' minds. So, who appeared in glory, so they're also glowing, and spoke of his decease. Notice what the, the subject of their conversation is. Why have they been summoned to this audience with Jesus? Because Jesus wanted to speak to them specifically about something regarding his coming death, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. That was the reason they'd been called. 
We'll come back to this, but it's very significant. Well, they then come down to Galilee, and we find again Jesus highlights the fact there that he's going to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed, and the third day he's going to rise again. I mean, again, this is just incredible. Jesus noticed this, foretold his death and resurrection. It wasn't some invention by the disciples. It wasn't some myth that they tried to propagate just to keep this thing going. You see, the world has tried to tell us that the resurrection is a myth. And throughout history, people have gone to these extraordinary lengths to try and silence or obfuscate or to deny the resurrection entirely. The Jews, as we'll see in a while, through everything they had at silencing the resurrection of Jesus, they failed. The Roman Catholic Church has actually bent over backwards to obfuscate this truth. And uh, in weeks to come, we might look at some of the ways in which they've done that, some of the studies that we might end up going into in coming weeks. Uh, that seems strange, doesn't it, that a church would try and get away from the resurrection? Well, I can assure you, it's a fact, the Roman Catholic Church in a number of ways have tried to just obfuscate, make it less of a, an issue, even removing it from Scripture. Yes, they have tried to do that. And today's atheists have also shouted loud, as loud as they can, but to no avail. Let me just share this with you. I thought this was rather good. Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, said this, Nobody knows who the four evangelists were. Okay, But they almost certainly never met Jesus personally. Much of what they wrote was in no sense an honest attempt at history. The Gospels are ancient fiction, says Mr. Dawkins with his smug face. I want to just share this with you because I, I found this last year or so and I just thought it was really quite good. You know, if Dawkins is correct, just imagine the following conversation taking place. You've got the disciples sat around. Luke says, uh, let's have another round of drinks. I have an idea I, I want to run past you. And John says, sure, what, what's on your mind? Luke says, well, you probably heard about that Nazarene named Jesus who was crucified yesterday. I think you'd be the perfect candidate for our fake Messiah project. Mark says, uh, one tiny problem, he's dead. Luke says, yes, but that means we'll control the narrative. We'll be in charge of his reputation. Matthew chimes in and says, but who would follow a dead Messiah? And Luke says, well, nobody. So we'll begin with the resurrection myth. We'll hire some thugs to fight off the soldiers guarding his tomb so he can get rid of the corpse. John says, uh, but a missing corpse isn't the same as a resurrection. Luke says, yeah, you're right. So we'll have to persuade Jesus' friends to spend the next 30 years telling everyone he's risen from the dead, even if sticking to that story means that they'll be imprisoned or killed. Mark says, okay, then what? Luke adds, well, to make a conspiracy credible, you need precise detail. So we'll invent stories where Jesus interacts with people in specific locations. Matthew then questioned well, won't people just disprove the stories by visiting those places and asking around? Luke said, well, there's no need to worry about that. We can invent a story about a, a synagogue's ruler, terminal daughter, being healed. Give the synagogue ruler a name. Set it in a particular place and still no one, absolutely no one, not even the people living in that place, would trouble to fact-check. Everyone would simply swallow the whole story. Mark then says, oh, it sounds like we're on safe ground there. Uh, but if we want people to follow Jesus, he'll need a message. People have been waiting for the Messiah for centuries. 
He's going to be worth listening to when he finally appears. John then says, a good point, I'll cook up some deep quotes. Luke then says, uh, thanks John. Mark, right, you'll need to put profound wisdom on Jesus' lips. The theological scholars can happily study for their entire careers. John says, not a problem. Luke then says, guys, it will take us a while to put these documents together. We need to get communities of people worshipping Jesus in the meantime, so that when our books come out, they'll get a good reception. Mark then says, there's a guy I know called Saul. He can help with that. Luke says, Saul the Pharisee? I can't imagine him getting involved with this kind of thing. Mark says, trust me, he's our man. I see him leaving behind everything he's been trained to do and planting congregations of Jesus worshippers throughout the Roman Empire. Whatever it costs him personally, beatings, shipwrecks and the like. Matthew says, awesome. But Luke, can you just remind me, what's the point of all this? I mean, what exactly do we get out of this? Luke, come on Matt, it'll be so much fun. We'll watch people being brutally martyred and we'll know that they've been deceived by our dishonest fiction. What's not to like about that? John says, I agree with Luke. This is definitely worth years of effort on our part. Count me in. Mark says, me too. Matthew says, well, I'll do it if my name comes first in all the promotional material. And Luke says, deal, let's get to work. Do you see how ridiculous the suggestion is by Dawkins that these individuals didn't know Jesus? That they try to make this stuff up? It defies any degree of sense to try and suggest that this is fiction no this is truth and not only did jesus foretell his death and resurrection in advance but it had been told foretold thousands of years before the feast of passover specifically foreshadowed christ's sacrificial death you don't have to turn there now but if you look in exodus chapter 12 You'll see the specific details. That the Jews were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the month. They were to keep it until the 14th month, the 14th day of the month, and they were to kill it between the evenings. It had to be a lamb without spot, without blemish. It spoke exactly of Jesus. The whole of the Passover was a model in advance of what Christ would accomplish. The Feast of Unleavened Bread speaks of Christ's burial. Jesus said, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. And the feast of first fruits speaks of Christ's resurrection. These models laid down over a thousand years before are so overwhelmingly a model of all that took place during this week that you have to be ignorant to reject it. Paul actually states, that Christ is the first fruits to God of all those who are destined to rise from the dead. So, let me give you a, a summary of these things. So Jesus' ministry was centered on this one week in history. Jesus came to do the will of his Father and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't want to be made known, we've seen that, through this incredible three and a half years of ministry until one specific day. Did you know that? Jesus, right from the start, from the wedding at Cana in Galilee, when he turned the water into wine, he said, see, you tell no one. Every time Jesus did a miracle, he said, don't tell anyone. They wanted to go and make him king. Jesus just slips through their midst after the feeding of the 5,000. He doesn't want any attention. 
He doesn't want it to be known who he is. That should strike you as rather strange. But when we get to Palm Sunday, Jesus intentionally arranges the whole thing. He sends his disciples ahead to go and get a donkey, specifically fulfilling the the quote from Zechariah and from Psalm 118. And Jesus then rides into Jerusalem as a king. Do you know that when a king would come in on a horse, they'd be coming in a time of battle. When they came on a donkey, they'd be coming, bringing peace. Solomon did the same thing. We see examples in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes in on a donkey, it's a statement that he's a king and he's coming to bring peace. Now, the Jewish leaders absolutely hate this. They try to stop Jesus' disciples worshipping him. Jesus says, look, if they stop, even the stones would cry out. What was special about this particular day? Why did Jesus say, we read in John's Gospel, that his hour had now come? All the time he said, my hour is not yet come. But on this day, he says, the hour has come. Why did he allow himself to be worshipped as the Messiah, the Prince, on this and only this day? Why did Jesus rebuke the Jews for not knowing what specific day it was? This this Palm Sunday. What was special about that day? What was so important that Jesus pronounces national blindness on Israel because, as it says in Luke 19, 44, they had missed the time of their visitation. There was something hugely significant about this one day. And by the way, that blindness has now lasted some 1,900 years. Well, we need to go back to the book of Daniel. In around about 537 BC, Israel's 70-year captivity in Babylon was over. Around 50,000 Jews had returned home. Daniel, by this time, was about 83 years old. So he'd remained in Babylon. Too old to make that journey back now. And chapter 9 reveals that Daniel was a little bit confused. You see, the captivity was over, but Jerusalem was still in ruins. So he turns to the book of Jeremiah to look at Jeremiah's prophecies and realize that there's a, a second period of 70 years specifically decreed upon the city of Jerusalem, not just the people, but for the city. And so he starts to pray. It's one of the most impassioned prayers we get in Scripture. In fact, he almost quotes verbatim Solomon's prayer in First Chronicles six thirty-six to thirty-nine. He starts by confessing the sins of his people, interceding for the city of Jerusalem. But partway through the prayer, Daniel's interrupted, not by a knock on the door, but by an angelic visit from Gabriel. Gabriel then tells Daniel that there are going to be 490 years decreed for the nation of Israel and for Jerusalem, for the city. During this time, this period, they're going to finish transgression, make an end of sins, bring in reconciliation for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place or the most holy one. Both are applicable. I mean, that's, a, that's an incredible scope to this prophecy. And clearly, we can straight away identify that that hasn't all happened yet. So clearly, some of this prophecy has got to yet be fulfilled. But what we do know is because, again, Daniel's given the details, that there was a command going to be given to restore and build Jerusalem. There would be a first period of 49 years and then another period of 432 years. 
in that first period, we're told that the street and the wall of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and they were in troublous times, as we read in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And that at the end of the first 483 years combined, it would conclude with the coming of the Messiah as king. Daniel was told the very day the king would come. Do you know Daniel also was, because of his interpretation of dreams for Nebuchadnezzar and so on, he was given a very special title, Rab Mag. doesn't mean anything to you or I, but it's the head of the Magi. It was a, it was a very elite Persian group. Typically they would interpret dreams and so on. But one of the incredible responsibilities they had, because they could seemingly see into the future, the Magi were entrusted with appointing the next king. It's interesting that Daniel, being given all this information about when the Messiah would come, and then placed in charge of the Magi, seemingly passed on to those Magi. It's a very interesting information. Because sometime later... Magi travel from that area of Mesopotamia looking for the one that they can anoint as the right king of Israel. There's still seven years of this prophecy to be fulfilled at some point in the future, but that first 483 years, as you said, started with this command to restore and build Jerusalem. That was given by the Persian king, Artaxerxes Longimanus, that was in First of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, 445 BC. That's in Nehemiah chapter 2. Or the 14th of March, 445 BC in our calendar. Now, <clears throat> we're given the, the number of days. Uh, in all the prophecies we find, in ancient prophecies, they worked on a 360-day calculation. Why? Well, because there's very good evidence, Isaac Newton being one who's uh, postulated these things in the past, that the earth used to be on a 360-day orbit. That's why we have 360 degrees in a circle and many, many other corroborations that we could point to. We won't go into the details this morning. If you want to know more, then I'm happy to bore you for hours going through that. I find it fascinating. But nevertheless, we find a number of prophecies in Scripture that base themselves on 360 days with Noah at the flood and things yet to come and so on. So we simply do the maths. 360 days times 483 years gives us a total of 173,880 days. This is what Gabriel says to Daniel, from that command, there'll be 173,880 days and then the Messiah will come. What happened? Well, you can do the maths. I can show it to you. There's various ways we can prove and demonstrate it. It comes exactly to the 6th of April, AD 32, the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. That's why this day was important. It was the day that Gabriel had given to Daniel, that Daniel had revealed to his own people as the day the Messiah would come. That's why Jesus holds the Jews accountable for missing it. And so we get to the Saturday was the Sabbath, but when it gets to the evening, it becomes effectively the next day in the Jewish calendar. The Jewish day begins in the evening. Jesus arrives at Bethany and has a meal there. The next day is Palm Sunday. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. In the evening, we find that he goes out and has a meal back out of Bethany. And then the next day comes in, walks past, the, sees a fig tree, curses it. The next day, they see the fig trees all withered up. But also they come out, they see the stones of the temple and the disciples just comment on how incredible. If you've been to Jerusalem, you see some of these foundation stones. They're not cemented together. There's no need for cement. They fit. You can't even slide a sheet of paper between these stones. They're so precisely cut. 
And they were saying, this is impressive. And Jesus adds, well, yeah, but not one stone here is going to remain upon another. And of course, he was speaking of what would happen in AD 70. We know that to be true. Jesus gives his disciples a lot of information about the end times. Well, that evening they go out, they have another supper, and Mary anoints Jesus' hair with a bottle of perfume that would have cost about a year's wage. Imagine that. A certain individual that evening is very upset because that money could have been used for all sorts of other things, to give to the poor or to go into his own pockets, whatever. But Judas is incensed, so he goes to the chief priests and concocts a plan. The next day, Jesus tells the disciples to go and get a room ready because he wants to celebrate the Passover with them. And then in the evening, Jesus and the disciples celebrate the Passover. Judas leaves partway through the meal, goes and brings this group together. And then Jesus, after the meal, the disciples, they go off to Gethsemane. And it's there that the entourage arrive. They arrest Jesus. Jesus then endures a number of trials. We'll talk about that in a second. We read in Luke 22, and he came out as he went, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and to, as his disciples also followed him, and when he was at the place, he said to them, pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them, about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. Notice Jesus again, wanting to do and fulfill his Father's will. The anguish of this, knowing that the wrath of God was going to fall on him. We read in Luke's gospel, Luke was a doctor, a medical doctor. He says, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. This is Dr. Luke's diagnosis. It's that hematidrosis is the condition and under extreme anguish and mental pressure. Again, not because of the cross, not because of what the Romans were going to do, but because of the cup of God's wrath. He cries three times, if there's any other way. There is no other way. Because Jesus knew that this was going to mean separation from his Father on account of our sin. On the cross, you remember, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, this obviously leads on there's this kind of kangaroo court. Now, a kangaroo court, I'm sure you're familiar, but it just refers to a sham legal proceeding or a, a court that denied due process rights in the name of expediency. Now, such rights include the right to summon witnesses or the right of cross-examination, the right not to incriminate oneself, the right not to be tried on secret evidence, the right to control one's own defense, the right to exclude evidence that is improperly obtained, irrelevant or inherently inadmissible, e.g. E. hearsay, or the right to exclude judges or jurors on the grounds of partiality or conflict of interest, or the rights of the right of appeal. And the outcome of a trial by kangaroo court is essentially determined in advance, usually for the purpose of providing a conviction, either by going through the motions of manipulated procedure or by allowing no defence at all. And of course, that is a great summary of what takes place because. Matthew 26, verse 59, we read, Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yet though many false witnesses came, yet they found none. See, Jesus endures three trials by the, Roman, by the, by the Jewish authorities, and then a further three by the Romans. Interestingly, it was illegal to carry weapons on a feast day, and yet they did when they arrested him. It was illegal to bind the accused before condemnation, and yet they did that too. It was illegal for the judges to participate in the arrest of the accused. They did that. 
No trial was allowed to be conducted at night, but that didn't seem to bother them. You see, the verdict also, other than acquittal, could not be pronounced the same day. The high priest would never be allowed to rend his robes, and yet all of those things take place. And that leads us then to the morning of the crucifixion. It would have been on the Thursday morning. And Jesus led out about 9 o'clock, put on the cross for 6 hours until 3 p.m. in the afternoon, when finally he dies. And cries out that great triumphant cry, to die. It means paid in full. It's translated in our Bibles as, it is finished. But Jesus was saying, everything is paid for. In Matthew 27, we read this, And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two other with him on either side and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And to this title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city. And it was written in Hebrew, in Greek, and in Latin. This is the chief priest of the Jews to Pilate. Right, not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. What did Pilate write? Well, we're told it was in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. But if we look at it in Hebrew, there'd be just four words. It would be Yeshua, the name of Jesus, Hanatsaroi of Nazareth, Vimelka, which is the king, and Hayudim, which is of the Jews. That's what Pilate had written. But look at the very first letter of each of those words. What you have there is Y-H-V-H. That may not mean a huge amount to you, but to the Jews, that is the name of God. It's the name that we would refer to as Jehovah or Yahweh. Sometimes referred to as the Tetragrammaton. These four letters. The title at the top of the cross said, God. And Pilate says, no, I'm not changing it. What I have written, I have written. Seemingly aware of it. Again, we just mentioned this a moment ago, that bearing his cross, he went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. You're familiar with this place, I'm sure. That's a picture of the place. And of course, there does seem to be this kind of like skull-shaped uh, impression in the rock there. You see what seems to be that two eye sockets and a, a nose jutting out a little bit. Interestingly, this place is outside the city walls. That's a look at the topography of this area. You have Salem, the old city at the bottom, the threshing floor of Ornan. This is where David interceded with God to stop the plague and so on. And David eventually chooses that location for the temple. But the very top of the hill was the place where Abraham offered up Isaac. Some 2,000 years acting out in advance what was taking place right now. Another father willing to offer up his son in that place. Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh in the Mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Seemingly Abraham knew that this location was very important. 
Of course it was. Because this is the very spot that Jesus himself would be crucified. If we zoom in on that again, you see Golgotha up the top, the peak. If we overlay a picture, you can see we've clearly got the Temple Mount here, which is where the temple would have been built. And then the top, up there, just outside, you can see even on today's map, the city walls. If you look at, again, a map, you'll find typically that type of map in the back of your Bibles. You'll find that the tomb, the Calvary, is just outside the city walls. There's no surprise in that because in Leviticus, we're actually told that these sacrifices that were offered to God for atonement for sin, that they were to carry them forth outside of the camp to a clean clean place. And one of the things they would do is to consume or to burn the sacrifice on the wood. Well, that's exactly what happened to Jesus. So many prophecies are fulfilled. It's all right for Dawkins to try and say that these things that the disciples wrote were myths. Well, what about all this stuff in the Old Testament? Thousands of years beforehand, detailing all these events. Hebrews reminds us, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Even the location had been chosen by God specifically. Now, back in Genesis, you remember Genesis 3, 14 and 15, where we have this promise, speaking of the the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and this statement that it shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. Well, this is dramatically played out. Again, the seed of the woman, the Messiah, would bruise the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise the seed's heel. Of course, Satan did bruise Jesus' heel, his feet by the nail through his feet. But we see another picture in type in the Old Testament with David and Goliath. Of course, Goliath is a type of Satan. How did Goliath die? A stone pierced his head. Jesus is referred to numerous times as a stone. Or as a rock idea. What happened to the head of Goliath? What a strange question for a resurrection Sunday morning. Well, we're actually told, strangely in 1 Samuel 17, 54, that David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put the armor in his tent. The strange thing about that is at that time, Jerusalem was under the control of the Jebusites. And yet, seemingly David goes on this daring mission and buries the head of Goliath in Jerusalem. Whereabouts? Well, it seems to be a place that was later marked. Let me read to you verse 17 of John 19 again. He, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull. Not just any old skull. Which is called in the Hebrew, Golgotha. Or if you will, Goliath of Garth. The place was named after the skull that was buried there. Now, in Joshua, we have an example in Joshua 10 of a battle. And when Joshua's army defeated these kings, they put their feet on their necks as a symboli- symbolizing that they've got complete victory over the enemy. Well, Jesus does exactly the same thing. Again, that verse from Genesis that God says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shall bruise his heel. The serpent was to bruise the heel of the seed, which he did. But the seed was to bruise the head of the serpent. And in this eternal declaration of Christ's victory, his bruised feet are literally upon 
the head of the enemy. A Calvary where Jesus' cross was placed is directly above where the head of Goliath is buried. We then go to the Friday. It gets to the evening. Jesus is put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea boldly goes and asks Pilate, can I have the body of Jesus? Pilate's surprised that he's dead already, but it grants that Joseph was a man of great standing. Pilate's a little confused and says, but why would you want to put the body of this criminal in your family tomb? It's unused. Why would you do that? And Joseph turns around and says, ah, yeah, it's just for the weekend. That's just a little addition, but, you know. The next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. No work was permitted. Now, the next day that followed, the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that that deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Now, you'd think if the Jewish authorities really were so confident, they wouldn't worry about these things, and yet they're so concerned that something might happen. And so they say, well, you know, maybe the, the, the disciples would come and steal the body. It says, command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, he is risen from the dead. And so the last error shall be worse than the third. So, first, so Pilate said unto them, you have a watch. Go your way. Make it as sure as you can. Interesting comment that Pilate makes. It's like, okay, if it makes you happy, you can have your watch. Send the, the guards Make it as sure as you can. If you think you can make it secure, then do it. That leads us then to the Saturday. The Saturday, of course, is another Sabbath, the regular weekly Sabbath. So the women still couldn't come to the tomb because no work was permitted. And that then leads us to the morning of the resurrection, the morning that we're celebrating this morning. When early in the morning the women come to the tomb, we read Mark 16, and very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? And when they looked, they saw, saw the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. Uh, they, they were very surprised to see it. I mean, they, again, as I said earlier, they didn't know that the Romans had been there guarding the place. And we read, And entering into the sepulchre, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he said unto them, be not affrighted. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. You know, it's amazing that even though these statements are made, they don't quite get it. They don't believe it. We can tell people in the world that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is risen. And it's almost as if they've got cotton wool in their ears and they can't hear. Just as an aside, back in Genesis, the ark came to rest in the, 17th, sorry, in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, in Exodus, God flips the calendar around by six months. So this becomes the very day, anniversary in advance. As new life begins on earth after the flood, well, so a new world begins for those now that will put their trust in Jesus Christ because he's risen from the dead. This three days, three nights, of course, we have the first night, the first day, the second night, the second day, the third night, and then Jesus rises on the third day. There's no details, uh, no contradiction with the details, no problem at all. Let me just talk you through quickly, as we just draw to a close, the order of these events then on this resurrection morning. I just want to highlight also that Christ died for our sins. Paul says this is the gospel. 
according to the scriptures, the feast of Passover. And that he was buried at the feast of unleavened bread. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures on the feast of first fruits. Everything worked like clockwork to fulfill God's ordained plan. So the women are the first to arrive at the, the tomb. They arrive on the morning after the Sabbath. So it's the first opportunity they could get there. And this angel descends and moves the stone out of the way. The guards, we find from the gospel accounts, freeze in fear. The women are encouraged to look inside, and Jesus' body is clearly not there. Another angel reminds them what Jesus said, and they're then told to go and tell his disciples and Peter. Peter, at this point, is segregated, separated out from among the disciples because he denied Jesus. Later, graciously, Jesus brings him back into the fold. The women then flee from the tomb because of the whole experience and also because of the guards who by this point have gone to the high priest to report back. And they head back, the ladies, to where the disciples were. But as they leave, they encounter two men. This is interesting. Dr. Luke tells us specifically that they were men, not angels, but they were men. Who were they? Why were they there? Well, two in Scripture is always a number used and associated with witness. And there may be a clue in that. I suggest to you they may be the same two men who were clothed in white that Jesus spoke to on top of Mount Hermon. He was specifically called to that audience to talk about the events that were going to take place in Jerusalem. Why would they need to be there? Well, I suggest so that they could witness the resurrection firsthand. And that these two individuals... I believe with Moses and Elijah. Again, we see two men at the ascension and we'll see two men appear during the tribulation time that is yet to come. Again, seemingly Moses and Elijah. I'll leave that with you. Mary, being much younger, arrives back first. And then the other women arrive. Peter and John then rush out. They go to investigate. And it was a dangerous mission. Of course, they didn't know what was going to happen. What about the guards? Would they have come back or anything else? But John tells us that he can run faster than Peter because he makes a point that he got to the tomb first. But Peter arrives and seeing the... John arrives, sees the grave clothes, but doesn't go in. But Peter arrives, goes straight in. You see, Peter, at this point, has denied Jesus. He's not bothered about defilement or anything else. He's got nothing left to lose. Peter notices, and then John recalls that this napkin was left there, folded. Is that significant? Why did Jesus fold the burial cloth after his resurrection? Is it significant? Well, I think probably yes, because when Jews typically were having a meal, if they were coming back to the table, if they'd gone away and they were coming back to carry on eating, they'd have folded the napkin and left it neatly. If they'd finished the meal, they'd scrunch it up and they'd just throw it into the pile. And so the servant would know to clear the table. Well, they look in the tomb and they see the napkins folded. The message is very clear. I'm coming back. Jesus then reveals himself to Mary. Again, we said earlier, nothing changed except Mary's perception in that instant as she looks and sees the risen Jesus. Jesus then meets the other women who are en route and he bids them to hurry to tell the rest and that meet, he'll meet them in Galilee. Why hurry? Well, simply because at this point there was a rumor circulating in Jerusalem. You see, this is the official story. We were told, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done, and when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples came by night and stole him away 
while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this is a saying commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Just want to highlight this guard very quickly because it was typically made up this watch of 16 highly trained Roman soldiers. Each would have had a spear, which a short sword, and a dagger. Each man also had five javelins inside a curved shield. Their primary weapon, though, was a sling. That's what they were trained to use most frequently. And they were trained to hit a target 70 feet away. They were, if you like, the special forces of their day. If a commanding officer came and found just one of the guards asleep, all 16 men in the unit would be killed. So if one fell asleep, the other guards obviously would set their tunics on fire, so they'd wake them up again quite quickly. In 390 AD, as Rome was beginning to fall apart, uh, then Caesar commanded a historian, Flavius Veratus Ronitus, to search the archives for military and tactical inspiration. As a result, they reconstructed this unique unique, uh, unique unit, elite unit, uh, based upon the historical records they had of it. <coughs> See, the tomb was also sealed with either wax or clay. Ropes would have then been put across the stone with the seal of Rome in the center. If anyone broke the seal, the punishment was to be crucified upside down. If they couldn't catch you, they'd crucify upside down every man, woman, and child in your village. That tomb was absolutely secure. There was no way the disciples were going to get into that. This story is preposterous that the, Roman, that the uh, Jewish leaders try and put out. But we read that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought sweet spices that they would come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulchre, the rising of the sun. And they said among themselves, who shall roll away the stone from the door of the sepulchre? Again, as I said, they didn't know the Roman guards were there. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake. That's what the guards absolutely just didn't know what to do and became as dead men now this is interesting how do we know this this is before the women have arrived this is as the angel comes and rolls rolls the stone the only ones there are the angels and the guards and yet we have this account whose eyewitness testimony is this well in israel there were tax collectors who would stay in their office and do the paperwork and others who would go out and collect taxes from the public and those were known as publicans. Matthew was of that group. He was a publican. He collected taxes from the public. <laughs> as a servant of Rome, he would always have had a Roman soldier with him, with his shield and spear to signify the authority of Rome. Matthew is the only gospel writer to tell us what happened at the tomb, that an angel came down and rolled the stone away and so on, and what happened in the discussion with Pilate. And that the soldiers didn't go to Pilate when they fled the tomb, but to the priests. And that the priests paid the soldiers to keep quiet. You see, this is inside information that Matthew is given from these soldiers whom he would have probably known personally. Again, we just read that a moment ago. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Is it likely... Again, you've got to imagine all 16 Roman guards around this sealed tomb 
They were each under the sentence of death if anything went wrong. If anyone came and broke the seal, they were crucified upside down. No, this isn't likely at all. That then leads us to the evening of the resurrection. And the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. Notice they were still frightened, even after all the things they'd heard of this day. And when he had said so, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus unto them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. I've gone through a lot of information, and there's just a couple of things I'll just to conclude with. Why have I given you this information? Why have we looked at these scriptures this morning? Because they were sent out to go and make a difference in this world, to witness and testify that Jesus was alive. You and I know this morning that Jesus is alive. And that call is upon each one of us. But unless we are personally convinced of the fact of the resurrection, not just in our hearts, but in our heads, we're not going to talk to people about it. But we need to talk to people about the resurrection. Paul highlights this in 1 Corinthians 15 again. We read verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said unto them, Receive you the Holy Ghost. This is when the church begins. Because we now have a group of people that are born again. They receive the Spirit of God for the first time. Now some 50 days later at Pentecost, the church will explode. Another 3,000 souls will be added to the multitude that already believed. There's overwhelming evidence for the resurrection, and we've gone through some of these things already, but I just want to share one little thing with you. This is the, the document referred to the Acts of Pilate, or the Acts of Pilate. It's important testimony of Pontius Pilate. It was discovered uh, being his official report to the Emperor Tiberius concerning the crucifixion of Christ. Now, the original manuscript is in the Vatican. There is a copy of this online. You can go and read it and you can look at it yourself. The link's there. It'll be on the notes that go up on the web later. Now, one of the early Christians, Justin Martyr, in here, one of his defenses, his first apology for the Christians, which was presented to the Emperor Antonius Pius in the year AD 138, having mentioned the crucifixion of Jesus and some of his attendant circumstances, makes this comment. He says, and these things were done... Uh, sorry, and that these things were done so you may know from the acts made in the time of Pontius Pilate, referring to this document. The same thing again to Tullian in his apology for Christianity about the as apology being a defense uh, about the year 200. After speaking of our Savior's crucifixion and resurrection and his appearance to the disciples who were ordained by him to publish the gospel over the world, thus proceeds of all these things relating to Christ. Pilate himself, in his conscience, already a Christian, interesting, sent an account to Tiberius, then emperor. And so we have this incredible document that, again, Pilate seemingly sent to emperor Caesar concerning the events of the crucifixion and the alleged resurrection of Jesus. And he details what happens regarding the crucifixion, the kind of man that Jesus was. That Jesus had been granted freedom to teach the people. The wealthy people didn't like Jesus on account of his support for the poor. These are the things that Pilate comments on. 
It also details the miraculous events at the tomb of Jesus, that a brilliant light was seen, that an angelic being appeared, that there was an earthquake, and that trained Roman guards collapsed in terror, and they actually saw Jesus risen from the dead, but that they were then given money to keep it quiet. Lord Lindhurst made this comment, one of the great legal minds in our history. He says, I, pretty, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you that such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. In Philippians 3.10, we read there, that I may know him, Paul says, and the power of his resurrection. What is the power of the resurrection? What is... Paul mean by that statement. Albert Barnes says this, and this is in closing. There is no one truth that will have greater power over us when properly believed than the truth that Christ has risen from the dead. To our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this morning and this opportunity just to review these things, to be reminded again that our faith is not built upon fables, but is built upon the sure foundation that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that he was seen of many people alive. And if Jesus rose from the dead, that our faith is not in vain. Our hope is not wasted. And Lord, give us the boldness and the confidence to share this wonderful gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, was dead and was buried, but then rose again according to the scriptures. Lord, this is the gospel. Let us have the boldness and the confidence to share this with whoever we meet. Lord, in season and out of season. For Lord, we know but the time is short. We just thank you now and we rejoice and praise you this day that you are alive. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's uh, fellowship together over some teas and coffees. May God richly bless you.